Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Children of the Resurrection. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 10th, 2019. In this week's Gospel reading, the Sadducees approach Jesus with a trick question. Hoping to pit him against his own religious tradition, they tell him a hypothetical story. A woman is given in marriage to one of seven brothers, they tell Jesus. When her husband dies without fathering an heir, she is passed on, as the law of Moses dictates, to his next younger brother. When that brother also dies without siring a child, she's passed on to the third, and so on. Eventually, all seven brothers die, and the woman, still childless, dies too. In the resurrection, the Sadducees ask smugly, certain that they've ensnared Jesus, whose wife will she be? The story is meant to be a joke that exposes the absurdity of believing in life after death. How could resurrection ever work in practical terms, given the complexities of human life? What would happen to marriage, to lineages and family traditions, to Old Testament law, to sex? Jesus, as usual, refuses to take the bait. He tells the Sadducees that the entire premise of their question is wrong. Their conception of God is too small. The children of the resurrection, he tells them, will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels, heavenly beings beloved of God, for whom the rules and practices of earthly life will not apply. To grasp resurrection via earthly terms is impossible. It is a reality of another order entirely, an order we can only approach by faith. It's tempting to dismiss this exchange as specific to first-century Jewish culture and irrelevant to us. After all, we don't practice leveret marriage or debate the fine points of Mosaic law in our Sunday morning's church services. Our intellectual assumptions and concerns are not the same as those of the Sadducees. And yet, a few things about this story strike me as instructive for us 21st century Christians. Here they are, in no particular order. Like the Sadducees, we have questions. If we assume we're the first generation of sophisticated folks to find life after death implausible, we should think again. The resurrection has never made sense in human terms. The ancients struggled with it just as much as we do. They found it just as odd, just as unlikely, just as bizarre. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. The Sadducees in the Gospel story point out discrepancies between resurrection and the laws of marriage and kinship. Similarly, we point out discrepancies between resurrection and the laws of biology and physics. We find ourselves baffled by Easter morning. Try as we might, we don't know how to wrap our brains around an empty grave, a reanimated body, a hope beyond the grim reality of death. In a real sense, this is a relief. Our struggle is an old struggle. It has a storied history. We aren't the first to wrestle with ultimate things, and we won't be the last. Most importantly, Jesus understands. Note that his response to the Sadducees is not an angry one. He doesn't scold. He challenges. He invites them to stretch themselves to see anew, to see again, 
He asks them to think beyond entrenched categories of what's possible and impossible, because nothing is impossible with God. Privilege is a barrier. When I read the Gospels, I'm struck by how often the religious elite use the powerless and the marginalized to score points against Jesus. A mob of self-righteous men drag a terrified woman caught in adultery to Jesus and dare him to let her off the hook in violation of Old Testament law. Elite dinner guests berate a broken-hearted woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears. The Pharisees criticize Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. In this week's story, the Sadducees concoct a story about a vulnerable widow who was passed from one man to another like human chattel just to trip up Jesus. In each of these examples, the person in pain is expendable. In each example, human suffering is abstracted for the sake of argument, debate, and theological comeuppance. No wonder the marginalized folk flock to Jesus while the privileged find him intolerable. Resurrection means living in circumstances that should render living impossible. Resurrection means enduring, overcoming, persisting, and surviving. What does the privileged know of such robust and resilient living? Maybe resurrection only makes sense to those who desperately need it. Maybe the hope of justice, peace, rest, and consolation after death only resonates for those whose lives on earth are marred by injustice, anxiety, toil, and trauma. The children of resurrection know that questions about Jesus are not finally academic questions. They are questions of life and death. They are questions with stakes so high, so consequential, and so profound, we dare not abstract them. Imagine what resurrection would feel like for the woman trapped in the Sadducee story. Imagine her arriving, finally, finally, in a place where her worth and her belovedness don't depend on her husband or her fertility or her sex appeal. Imagine her basking in the safe, unconditional, and eternal love of the God who created her. If our questions and objections about faith require us to invalidate the lived experiences of actual people who are suffering in this life, then we are asking the wrong questions and favoring the wrong objections. The children of resurrection are children of love. Period. We'll know it if we walk it. The other problem with approaching Jesus as the Sadducees do is that their approach isn't intimate and personal. They want to know Jesus without walking with Jesus. They want to witness resurrection without suffering death. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes clear that only those willing to take up their own crosses and follow him can experience new life. Only disciples will become children of the resurrection, worthy of a place in that age. The life of faith is not a spectator sport. To know it, we have to walk it. We have to risk intimacy with Jesus. We have to share in his life as it is incarnated within Christian community. We have to take up the practices of God's people. We have to enter into the joy, the loss, the sacrifice, the wonder, the mystery, the grief, and the challenge of life in Christ. Resurrection knowing is a lived knowing. Do we want this kingdom or don't we? In his response to the Sadducees, Jesus describes a realm in which people neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
a realm where no human being belongs to any other, because all belong equally to God. This is, we can safely extrapolate, a realm where women are no longer treated like property, a realm where sex, sexuality, power, status, gender, marriage, kinship, and childbearing no longer bind or restrict God's children, a realm where patriarchy is obsolete, defunct, and dead. The realm Jesus describes is the kingdom of God. It is the very kingdom we supposedly invite into our daily lives each time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. If this is the case, why do so many Christians continue to support discrimination against women, against the LGBTQ community, and against a myriad of other oppressed minority groups, 2,000 years after Jesus described a realm of radical freedom, radical love, and radical equality? Why does any iteration of the church continue to support patriarchy and its anxiety-ridden views on sex, gender, race, and sexuality? Jesus' description of the kingdom of God is clear. Do we want God's kingdom, or don't we? God is not a God of the dead. This is the line Jesus uses to conclude his response to the Sadducees. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. We serve the God of the living. What does this mean? Perhaps it means that God is always in the business of making new, and making alive, and making vibrant. Perhaps it means we need to stop clinging to what is dead, to what is deadening, to what is passing away. Perhaps it means we need to risk evolution, metanoia, growth, and change. What new and living thing does God want to do among us that we're too afraid to let God do? Where are we stagnating? Can we rise up out of our graves? Can we hold out for the impossible? Can we dare to live as Jesus longs for us to live? as the children of resurrection. For books this week, Dan reviews In Search of a Prophet, A Spiritual Journey with Khalil Gibran by Paul Gordon Chandler. Here's a bit of a trick question. Who was Khalil Gibran? I would count myself among those who know his name and his famous book, The Prophet, which has sold 100 million copies and been translated into over 40 languages but who would otherwise have to confess complete ignorance. At least I'm not alone. In the introduction to his book, Paul Gordon Chandler notes, this is a common phenomenon when it comes to Gibran, so much so that one of his biographers called him the most famous stranger on earth, a name without a face. Chandler's book isn't a biography in the technical sense of the word. There are several of those, even though much of it is biographical. Rather, he calls it a type of pilgrimage into and through Khalil's own spiritual journey. He commends a Lebanese writer, artist, and mystic as a model for our own day because of the way that he transcended the divisions between the East and West. This follows Chandler's own life and work. He grew up in Senegal and has done extensive work in the Middle East and North Africa, including a 10-year stint as the rector of the Episcopal Church in Cairo. He founded the nonprofit Caravan, which uses the arts to build bridges of peace between the creeds and cultures of the Middle East and the West. Today, he's a senior Anglican priest of the Church of the Epiphany at the Anglican Center in Doha, Qatar. Chandler's book is also a sort of travelogue. He explores Gibran by visiting all of the important places associated with his life and work, beginning with his birthplace in the Lebanese mountains, into a Marianite Catholic family, 
His move to Boston at the age of 12, two and a half years of formal art studies in Paris, where he met the sculptor Rodin. His eventual move to New York City, where he spent the last 20 years of his short life, and museums around the world that feature his work. Gibran was a sort of heretic rebel in the eyes of many because of his explicit rejection of traditional forms of religion, which in his view were characterized by sectarian divisions and hypocrisy. His own faith transcended all cultures and religion and aspired toward inclusivity, the embrace of all. Gibran went beyond religion to the core of universal spirituality. To heed his wisdom and follow his example urges Chandler, would heal our world. For films this week, Dan reviews Angel of Nanjing. The Yangtze River Bridge in Nanjing is a national landmark and the longest and one of the most famous bridges in China. It is also one of the most popular places in the world to commit suicide, with over 2,000 deaths from 1986 to 2006. Since December 19, 2003, a good Samaritan named Chen Shi has patrolled the bridge in order to prevent people from killing themselves. After working all week at a regular job, every weekend he rides his motor scooter to the bridge. He has no particular training, just a bright red jacket that says, cherish life every day, and a heart-shaped sign. He talks people down, grabs them from the bridge, gives them money, buys them a meal, provides them with food, helps them get jobs, offers them a pamphlet, rents them an apartment, and make sure that they have his mobile phone number. Every year, he throws a Christmas party for survivors and the volunteers who now help him. Shen has saved over 300 people and developed his own taxonomy of five main reasons why people commit suicide. But he has also watched 80 to 90 people plummet to their deaths and been slapped and cursed. The work, he says, has had a profound impact on him. By his own description, he's a heavy drinker and smoker. He feels guilty for those he has not saved and struggles with depression. Chen Si has been featured in various media, including a 2004 article in the New York Times. This documentary film about him has won numerous awards at small film festivals. It is in Chinese with English subtitles. I watched it on Amazon streaming. And lastly, for poetry this week, The Hereafter by Andrew Hudgens. Some people, as they die, grow fierce, afraid. They see a bright light, offer frantic prayers, and try to climb them like Jacob's ladder up to heaven. Others, never wavering, inhabit heaven years before they die, so certain of their grace they can describe down to the gingerbread around the eaves, the cottage God has saved for them. For hours they'll talk of how the willow will not weep, the flowering Judas not betray, They'll talk of how they'll finally learn to play the flute and speak good French. Still others know they'll rot and their flesh turn to earth, which will become live oaks spreading their leaves in August light. The green cathedral glow that shines through them will light grandchildren playing hide-and-seek inside the grove. My next-door neighbor says he's glad the buzzards will at last give wings to those of us who have envied swifts as they swoop, twist, and race through tight mosquito runs. And some, my brother's one, anticipate the grave as if it were a chair pulled up before a fire on winter nights. His ghost, he thinks, will slouch into the velvet cushion, a bourbon and branch water in its hand. I've even met a man who says his soul will come back in another skin, the way a renter moves from house to house. Myself, 
I'd like to come back as my father's hound, or something fast, a deer, a rust-red fox. For so long I've thought of us as nails God drives into the oak floor of this world. It's hard to comprehend the hammer turned to claw me out. I'm joking, mostly. I love the possibilities, not one or two, but all of them. So if I had to choose, pick only one and let the others go, my death would be less strange, less rich, less like a dizzying swig of fine rot gut. I roll the bust head slow across my tongue and taste the copper coils, the mockingbird that died from fumes and plunged wings spread into the mash. And underneath it all, just barely there, I find the scorched nut hint of corn that grew in fields I walked, flourished beneath the sun that warmed my skin, swaying in a changing wind that tussled, stung, caressed, and toppled me. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 10th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.